0: On today's episode, we go in-depth on economic policy with Stanford economist Ed Lazier, who worked on the 2017 tax reform bill. He explains how
1: those changes have helped put the country on a faster growth track. This bill did that in the sense that it moved away from taxing capital, and by doing that, removed the most significant burden to economic growth. So uh, this is pretty much a bipartisan statement. He also shares how he
0: came to be the head of the Council of Economic Advisers in the Bush administration, and how immigration is still a positive economic factor. I'm Andrew Kaufman, and this is The Strategist, presented by the George W. Bush Institute. What happens when you cross the 43rd president, late-night sketch comedy, and compelling conversation? The Strategist, a podcast born from the word strategery, which was coined by SNL and embraced by the George W. Bush administration. We highlight the American spirit of leadership and compassion through thought-provoking conversations. And we're reminded that the most effective leaders are the ones who laugh. We are joined today by Ed Lazier, an American economist who is the 24th chairman of the Council of Economic Advisors and is currently a senior fellow at the Hoover Institute and at Stanford University. Ed, thank you so much for joining us at the Bush Institute
1: Studios for the Strategist. Well, thank you. It's a pleasure to be here with you today.
0: And I'm also joined by our in-house expert on all things economics, Bush Institute, SMU Economic Growth Managing Director, Matthew Rooney. Matt, thanks for taking the time out of your day today to join us.
2: Thank you, Andrew. Always a pleasure. Thank you.
0: So, Ed, you were involved recently in the largest U.S. tax reform legislation in more than three decades. What excites you about this new legislation?
1: The most important thing about the legislation it's, is that it's a move in the right direction. And when I say the right direction, it's not so much about low taxes versus high taxes. Uh, we always have to raise enough money to support the government. And the question is, how do we do that most efficiently and with the least pernicious effects on the economy? This bill did that in the sense that it moved away from taxing capital. And by doing that, removed the most significant burden to economic growth. So uh, this is pretty much a bipartisan statement. If you look at economists on both sides of the political spectrum, people who have studied tax, people who understand public finance, know that if, if in terms of economic growth – the worst tax that you can have in terms of economic growth is taxes on capital. Now, that doesn't mean that you may not want to tax capital for other reasons. But if you're only interested in growth, there's virtual unanimity that taxing capital is a bad deal. And the reason for that is quite simple. Capital is the most mobile factor of production. So, uh, if you think about a euro sitting in Germany and deciding where to go to invest – They have a choice. They can go to Siemens or they can go to GE or GM or any other American company. And what they're looking for are after-tax returns. So if we raise taxes on capital in the United States, that marginal euro, that euro is that's kind of on the border of where should I go? Should I stay in Germany or should I come to the United States is more likely to stay in Germany. And for that reason... Taxing capital has the biggest effect on affecting economic growth because it lowers investment.
0: And so what then is the in-house effect of economic growth? So we ta- we're talking about economic growth at a high level. What then does the individual feel when that, e- when that economic growth happens?
1: Well, that's a great question, and it actually is the subject of a book that I'm writing, which will evolve over the next couple of years, but I'll give you a preview because uh, I al- already know some of the results. Uh, the, the primary effect of economic growth is uh, an effect on productivity. And, and what we care about, it, we care about primarily productivity. The reason is this, productivity is kind of an abstract concept. Let me define it for you. Productivity simply means the amount of output that we get per hour of labor. And the more output we get for each hour of labor, the higher our wages. And that's true on on average, it's true over time, it's true across countries, and it's it's also true across people within a country. So those people who are most productive within a country also command the highest wages. Why is that important? The reason it's important is that if you're interested in the welfare of the typical working person and you say, what can we do most effectli- effectively to raise the standard of living of that person, it's... Uh, it, comes down to one thing, raise productivity. If you raise productivity, you'll raise the standard of living. So, uh, one of the things that uh, we have seen in the past decade or so, it's an unfortunate consequence perhaps of the uh, – in part of the the last recession, financial crisis, but it's actually been going on for a longer period of time, uh, is that productivity has slumped. So uh, we're not getting the same kinds of growth in productivity that we've had before, and that's showing up in wage growth. So as a result, we're not seeing wage growth uh, as well. Uh, I want to come back to this a little later on in the in the program, but uh, it also has effects on inequality and also on poverty, and we can talk about that a little later.
2: I hope so too. Is the, <laughs> is, the uh, is is this slump in productivity growth uh, unique to the United States? Is it is it shared among all industrialized countries? Is it a global phenomenon?
1: It is a global phenomenon, but uh one of the things that I, I would say as and again I've looked at this uh just recently pretty carefully. Um when when I say we have a productivity slump, uh the easiest way to see this is that over the past decade or so, particularly the last few years uh, until the recent the recent growth uh in in the past couple of quarters, productivity has been hovering at around 1% per year. So it's been growing at about 1%. For us, historically, and when I say historically, the 30-year average, if you go back before the recession, was about 2% per year. So we are low relative to our historic average, but we're also low in productivity relative to some other countries. So if you look across the board at the G7, we're better than some, we're worse than some, but it's not like we're knocking it out of the park relative to others. It is still true that they are low, but there are some countries that are doing somewhat better on that as well. So um, for example, one of the kind of, Surprises is that productivity in France is actually quite high. Mm. Um, The French don't work long hours, but it turns out they actually turn out quite a quite a high output per hour. Mm -hmm. Uh, Might surprise some Americans, but it's uh, (laughs) it's true. Uh, The French are pretty good at this stuff.
2: Only before lunch, though, right?
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Well, you know, you got to in in terms of unmeasured quality, you got to count the wine as (laughs) well. So uh, that's part of the output. Um, (laughs) But uh, uh, you know, so so we do see these variations around the world. But, you know, as you said, you know, earlier, you mentioned it was controversial and you weren't just talking about measurement. You were also talking about what can we do to remedy the productivity Correct. slowdown? And that's where the controversy lies. So there are basically, you know, three quick stories. I'll uh, just rattle them off. One is, is the notion of sta- secular stagnation. There's just not enough demand out there to keep the economy humming. Um, I think that explanation, that was an explanation that was uh, put forth in the 30s when we were in the Great Depression. It kind of went out of business then, and it's, it's, Going, it seems to me that it's going out of business again, primarily uh, because we have had some some good growth in the past few quarters. Um, the second is that all the cool stuff's already been invented. And so it's going to be hard to have productivity grow at the same rate that it grew in the past, simply because it's harder to repeat the miracles that we saw in the early, th- early 20th century. Um, you know that's that's kind of anecdotal it may be true it may not be true but there are certainly plenty of things that we didn't think would would come about that have come about in the past 20 years both in biotech information technology communications lots of areas energy fracking you know you see this all the time no one anticipated that stuff so
2: pretty much the definition of an of a of, a, of an innovation right is that you don't see it coming exactly <laughs> you didn't exactly. know if we'd known the, inter- the internet was going to be there in the 1970s then it wouldn't happen <laughs> but, yeah, in the 1990s. Right. It would have happened in 1910. Right, exactly. <laughs> when did they try
1: and close
0: the patent office? What what year was that? Because everything had been
2: because everything had already been invented. <laughs> right. Exactly.
0: Yeah.
1: yeah. So that's you know I, I'm not I'm not a, a big believer in that particular philosophy either. The third one is 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 kind of what we were talking about before, which in in some sense is just bad luck. You know, there are good periods and bad periods, and if you look historically at productivity, you'll see there are ups and downs, and um, you know the fact that you happen to be in a down for ten years or so is not uh, without precedent, and you know hopefully it'll turn around. So yeah. Yeah. Uh, policy, you know, also plays a role in that. Yeah,
2: yeah.
0: Well, Ed, we we hear you talk, and you sound like the kind of guy that maybe should have been an advisor to the president or something on <laughs> economics, and it turns out you were in the in the Bush administration. How what was your what was your path that got you from from your career into being an advisor in the White House, and what what did that job entail? <laughs>
1: Uh, well, the, the path is the president asks you. Um, <laughs> so uh, the question is, you know, how, how do you come to his attention? Obviously, that's part of it. Um, and that's, to be honest, that's kind of idiosyncratic, haphazard uh, luck, I'd say. Um, you know, you're you're working. Uh, there are a group of people who are thinking about policy issues and, and trying to translate economic theory and economic uh, empirical evidence into policy. And I was certainly in that community. I worked at Stanford and Hoover Institution before that, University of Chicago. So i had been thinking about these things my whole career, um, and was fortunate enough to get asked by President Bush. It was a you know great honor to to be in there. Go ahead, Matt. You're going to well, just jump in.
2: I just interested. Uh, one of the things we discussed uh, as we were preparing for today was, uh, you know, the Bush Institute spends a lot of time and effort on leadership development, and so one of the one of the themes we wanted to touch on was your leadership and and so i'm curious to know your your thoughts as to how does the chairman of the council of economic advisors which have, i mean i think many people probably don't even really understand what that is and yeah. it sounds kind of bureaucratic I and mean, the only time you ever yeah. the only time you ever hear from the council of economic advisors it's uh you know this this kind of tome that that is impenetrable and you you wait for somebody from the press to read it and yeah. tell you what's in it so how does the chairman of the council of economic advisors Exercise leadership. What yeah. you know, kind of what is the leadership job there?
1: Okay, well, I, I would say uh, it's a couple of things. First of all, there's the internal aspect of leadership, and then there's the. Uh, external aspect, which is communication with your colleagues in in, in the other principals in the White House. Uh, the internal stuff is is something that uh, is like any job. It's like being you know a a manager, a CEO of of any company or agency. And in my case, I was very fortunate. I had a couple of guys, t- chiefs of staff, who ran the show for me and were extremely effective. And I was a good delegator um, in the sense that uh, I I knew my shortcomings and. And one of them was uh attention to internal details but these guys were so much better at it than I was that they just made me look good uh and that's the reality i'm not i'm not being uh fa- falsely modest that that is the reality these guys were better at it and i think part of leadership is understanding what you're good at and what you're not so good at and and delegating those things to others that uh, are your shortcomings so um in that sense we ran uh, i think we ran a great show it was a very effective cea um and uh Probably one of the most influential CEAs in in its history. Part of that is is uh, serendipity. Uh, you know, we happen to be there during the financial crisis, which is probably the most important time in the history of the Council of Economic Advisors to to have a, a CEA because you're you're there when they actually need you. Um, but uh, I, I think a, a large part of it was uh, again the staff, the, these guys that were really excellent people. The other thing when you say leadership, Matt, and I think you're you're well aware of this. you've been in the same positions kinds of positions your whole life and and you certainly know how this works, is you've got to be able to get along uh, with your colleagues, communicate well, and persuade them and um, to be honest, that was a skill that I, I had to acquire on the job. Um, I, uh, you know, I didn't really know how to do that. Academics are loners. You know, I kind of sit in my office most of the time and scribble equations on yellow pads of paper. Um, and, and so getting into an environment where you actually had to work as a team player, uh, was something relatively new to me. You know, I think. Ed, we could listen to
0: you go for hours and unfortunately we've we've got a limited amount of time. And so I, f- I feel like no conversation on economics is complete without looking at the immigration picture, especially today as that's always the always at the top of everyone's mind. Ed, what are what are your thoughts on immigration? Do they do they take jobs from Americans? Where are we on immigration?
1: Uh, well, I wouldn't say they take jobs. Um, the it, jobs basically are determined not so much by uh how, what, what's happening on the demand side and on substitutes? Jobs are basically determined by the number of people. So if you look at the number of jobs that there were in 1900 and you look at the number of jobs there were in 2000, it basically reflects the population. So people create their own jobs. So it's not so much an issue of jobs. I think that, probably the better way to uh, focus on the question that you're really getting at is not so much jobs, it's really wages. And I think what people always care about is when you have – Cheap substitutes coming in—is that somehow going to affect their wages? So um, it, there are really two issues here. One is a policy issue: Is there are there ways to structure immigration so as to minimize or mitigate the effects of those on the on the native uh, population? Uh, and then, and then, second, who is most severely affected by this? So let me do the the, the second one first. Um, so the the people who seem to be most affected by immigrants in terms of Wage pressure, to the extent there is any at all, are actually prior waves of immigrants. So, uh, for example, if you think about people coming in right now, obviously we're, um, you know, as the timing of this program is being done, we have a, a wave of people who are uh, coming – up to the southern border of the United States, and the question would be, who would they affect if they are successful in getting into the United States? And it would primarily be their predecessors, those people who came from the same areas uh, and are doing the same jobs as they are because they will be competition for them. Now... Most of the evidence on this actually suggests that those effects are minimal. And when I say minimal, because the flow is so small relative to the number of people who are already here, even though it looks like a big number of people coming in, still relative to the 12 million or so that have already come into the United States uh, from those countries, you know, you're talking about still uh, quite small numbers. So, um, uh, that's not going to have big effects on wages, and that's what most of the empirical literature shows, is that it doesn't have big effects. It has some effect, but it doesn't have, have big effects. Uh, the second issue, I think, is, is the one on policy, and that is how do we deal with this most effectively and think about how to, uh, again, soften the blow to those people who – perhaps are at least able to withstand the shock. So when we say, well, it's just previous immigrants, you know, that doesn't mean we don't care about previous immigrants. You know, many of those people have come in, uh, you know, through uh, appropriate channels are now many of them are American citizens, and we certainly care about them as much as we do others. So the question is, how do you mitigate those effects? And, and what I always argue is that we ought to be looking um, for an immigration policy that tends to be a little bit more labor market oriented. And what I mean by more labor market oriented is. I mentioned the Bureau of Labor Statistics earlier, the guys, you know, the uh, bureaucrats in Washington who look at this stuff, they have very good data on which industries and occupations are most in need of people. Um, And what we could do is tailor our immigration system a little bit more toward allowing, uh, I would say, a a balance slightly more in favor of skills-based immigration. So we bring in people where the skills are most needed and where those people are gonna have the least negative effects on uh, current citizens in the United States, current uh, people living in the United States. So that would be a, a relatively easy way to fix the problem. Now, when I say easy, uh, I say easy in the sense that it's, it's not a big tweak in the system, but that doesn't mean it's politically easy as we know. We've seen uh, many immigration bills fail. Yeah.
2: Um, two, two things occurred to me as you were talking. One is I think um, Canada and, and a number of other G7 countries actually follow a paradigm yeah. like that in their immigrations. Canadians actively like recruit immigrants based on labor market needs in Canada, uh, which is an interesting thing that we – have that we uh, focus on a bit in our uh, in our publication called America's Advantage, where we where we collect a series of um, statistical factoids about the impact of immigrants on the on the economy. One thing that occur- another thing that occurred to me is is there is there uh, what's the impact of immigrants like the ones we're seeing now so controversially coming out of Central America on productivity growth? You commented on wages. Does the does the arrival of those people with presumably relatively a skill base, yeah. does that does that contribute at the margin to Slack productivity growth?
1: Yeah, so that's a, that's a a good point actually. Um, what you're saying is, you if you bring in people who are on average going to be. Less productive than, say, the typical American citizen, and yeah, that's because not because they're not, not
2: hardworking. But no, just because their education level is low. Right. Levels.
1: Exactly. I was going to say they're certainly hardworking, um, and actually, uh, one of the things that's true is that the immigrants tend to not be from the lower parts of the educational or skill distributions of their own countries. Mm-hmm. Remember, you know, so the Statue of Liberty says, "Give us your tired and poor." Well. They, they may look tired and poor relative to the native born populations, but those people are the pioneers. They're the ones who are willing to take the steps to leave their countries, that's not an easy thing to do. So when they come here, they're less productive than the native-born population. Part of it is they don't speak the language. You know, they may not, some of them do, some of them don't. Uh, they haven't been educated in this country. Those are all disadvantages relative to the native-born population. So when they come in, they're going to bring down the average for a while. The one thing we know, though, is that um, uh, the second generation the kids of the immigrants actually tend to do better than the native born populations of course there you know many of them are native born but uh when they come in they tend to do better uh, immigrant kids are you know they've seen hard times they know what it's like and they work very hard and um uh, you know we've seen that uh, uh, country after country from virtually every source country in the world uh, that tends to be true that the second generation kids work uh, work in, and and succeed uh, better than native population but you're right there is some there is some uh, productivity effect initially again I don't think it's a major problem um, I, I think it, to the extent that it's a problem at all it's a problem only insofar as it affects um, you know close substitutes to those people who uh, again are are people who came in earlier and I think we can soften the the effects of that uh, again by having a slightly more strategic immigration policy You mentioned Canada um, one of uh, our unfortunate uh, f- Lack of successes, I would say, during the Bush administration is, uh, as you know, President Bush was a pro-immigration Republican. Um, we had, uh, Democrats in the Senate that he worked with, Ted Kennedy, late Senator Ted Kennedy, um, and he got together and, and, uh, late Senator McCain was involved in this as well, tried to put together, uh, what I thought was a terrific immigration bill, um, and uh, it got close, but it didn't make it. Um, and it, it, you know, I wouldn't say it was modeled after the Canadian system, but it certainly had uh, many, many resemblances to that system. And I think it it would have moved us in a better direction. Um, unfortunately, it didn't happen.
0: Well, and I feel about roughly five to 10 times smarter than I did about a half hour ago. <laughs> um, I hope I remember everything that you've said, because I am truly feel enlightened about the economy now in a way that I wasn't before. Um, thanks so much for spending the time to do this. We're looking forward to that book you have coming out sh- coming out soon. Um, and by soon, I guess you haven't started writing it. So well, it so started, uh, but
1: these are, you know, academics are slow for, for <laughs> us. For us, 20 years is the short run. So <laughs> Ed, thanks so much again for joining us.
0: If you enjoyed today's episode and would like to help us spread the word about The Strategist, please give us a five-star review and tell your friends to subscribe. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and all the major listening apps. If you're tuning in on a smartphone, tap or swipe over the cover art. You'll find episode notes with helpful information and details you may have missed. The Strategist was produced by Ioana Pappas at the George W. Bush Institute in Dallas, Texas. Thank you for listening.